thank you for coming here today. It's me, Linda Sage, on Learning From Life. One thing I can promise you, there'll be people to meet over the airways here you'll never forget. Some, as long as you live. Let's just say, most have had what could be termed as an interesting life. It's not what happens, it's how you deal with it. And one line from any of them could change the way you deal with things forever. They'll be landing from all parts of the planet, all ages, backgrounds and experiences. Telling the truth of how it was and how they manage things may just help you miss a rock or two along your road too. Hi and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm so pleased that you've been able to join us because today is an exceptional day. We've got a fantastic guest. All my guests are wonderful, but today is just amazing. And to be honest, I don't even know where to start because I've got Stephen Robinson with me and he has just got a list of everything from breakdancer to one-eyed pilot. Mm, and there's a lot of things in between. Also horse rider, DIY and engineer. So let's just jump in and start. Steve, thanks for being with us. You're more than welcome, Linda. Hello. Hey. So I don't quite know where to start with you because we have so many areas that we could be talking about. I think we could be here for the next few weeks. I'm never certain where to start. When people say to me, so what do you do, Steve? I think I, I get stuck straight away because I don't know which thing to tell them that I do because I've done just about, well, I won't say, well, I won't say just about everything, but there's still a lot more that I'd like to do that I haven't tried yet. So let, let's see, uh, in, in case people don't know who you are, uh, let's go back to a little bit beginning. You're uh, Leeds born and bred. I am. I was born in Woodhouse. Do you know Woodhouse? No, I don't. Well, Woodhouse in the 1960s was a really deprived area and it was known where I came from, was known as Buggy Park. And that was because the land and the houses were infested with bugs. Oh. So it was a it was a really deprived area, but of course it doesn't matter where you're from so long as you've got the love of a, a of a family. And we had the love of my mum, and and due to that you don't even realise that you come from squalor. You don't care. You're happy with the family that you're in, and consequently I had a happy upbringing, but you know it was a poor upbringing. Yeah, and fortunately, yeah, sort of that sort of era and this area that I think there was quite a few areas like that. And you know, schooling and education wasn't always a priority. That's true. That's true. And my schooling was pretty poor. But I suppose part of the problem with that is I hated school and I never wanted to be there. And you think, well, you know, if you don't want to be there, what do you do? Well, what you do is you don't turn up on the days you're supposed to turn up. But you used to uh, annoy the police, I believe. Well, I, I did and I didn't do it deliberately. Yeah, well, I didn't, I never set out to be a bad boy and I'm not a bad boy really, but there's certain things that you want to do in life and there's certain things that other people don't want you to do in life. And that's when you, you, end, you end up in conflict. Well, the thing that I wanted to do was ride my motorbike on the fields over the road from where I live. But of course, the police didn't want me to ride my motorbike on the fields <laughs> over the road from where I lived. So what do you do? Do you, do you, do you just think, okay, I won't do it? But I mean, I'm an impetuous, impetuous young teenager. I'm only 13. I've only just become a teenager. And I'm thinking, well, I want to ride my bike. So I ride my bike. And you think to yourself, well, I'm not going to worry about the consequences. And if the police stop me, I'll see how I feel on that day, whether I'll stop for them or I won't stop for them, which sounds a bit, a bit bad because, first of all, 
when you start down this route you just want to ride your bike and that's all you want you don't want to disturb anybody you don't want to upset anybody and and that was that that's how i lived my life i just wanted to ride my bike and i kept away from everybody so i didn't upset anybody but the police back in those days would insist on trying to catch us and a lot of times i'd just stop and i'd talk to them and some of the police were really decent people i think the thought that my motorbike was stolen because most of the motorbikes that, that young men were riding were stolen but mine wasn't stolen mine was a, a legal motorbike that I'd worked hard for but still you stop and you talk to them and even some of those policemen back in those days were were good friends and some of them would even just just stop to have a ride on my motorbike and i let them have a ride on the motorbike and they bring the motorbike back and they say thanks steve stay away from people so <laughs> the thing is that was strange because they were the policemen that you remember and they were the policemen that really help in an upbringing because they're tolerant and and they realize that you just want to enjoy yourself but then there was other the other type of police that would throw the book at you even though you know even though you were just trying to enjoy yourself and i did stop one time for a policeman and it, and he wasn't so pleasant and he yeah. decided that he would um, take me to court and i was i think i was i was 15 i might have been 14 and they took me to court and I was fined, I think, £80 and, and six points put on my driver's licence before I was even old enough to have a driver's licence. Oh, my goodness. And, and that was a lot of money in those days, especially for you. That was a hell of a lot of money. I had nothing and there was no way I could pay it. So we arranged to pay it at 50 pence a week. And, and the strange thing is it was only, I know we might be jumping a bit forwards here because we haven't even spoken about an accident, but it's only when I had my motorcycle accident that the, the courts wrote and let me off with that fine and said, okay, don't worry, we think he's been punished enough with his accident and he no longer has to pay the fine. So that was that was a, a positive. That was a, that was good. It meant I was fifty <laughs> it meant I was fifty pence a week better off. <laughs> so there, there's always a positive side for your for your stories and this is what's always amazing. So I know you jumped in there with your accident, but do you want to just uh, give us a little bit of a, a background to that as well? I will do, yeah. The, the, first of all, how did I get into motorbikes? Well, that was that was by chance, really, because my school life was so bad. I hated school, as I, as I said, and I didn't attend. But I didn't attend because I was bullied, and I was really badly bullied. So I only attended two days out of five. And it wasn't official, and I didn't play truant. It was just anxiety and stress kept me at home. I was so poorly and afraid of going to school that I, I, I didn't go. My mum let me stay at home, but of course that was before they had all the truant officers and, 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 and what yeah. But it was so bad that I just couldn't face going to school. And, and what happened is one day I was just taking the dog for a walk and a friend of mine had a motorbike on the local field and he let me have a go on the motorbike and, and I loved it. And that was the start of my motorcycle days and that was the motorbike, my very first motorbike that I bought. And that's how I ended up getting into motorbikes and that was the age of 13. And I rode my motorbike throughout my, throughout my teenage years. Well, I said, not quite throughout. I got to 18 and I, I was studying at Leeds College Technology, a technical college in, in Leeds City Centre. And I was studying motor engineering. I wanted to be a motor mechanic. Don't ask me how I got into that college because I had no qualifications from school. I, I think I managed to blag my way into that college just by <laughs> saying to the tutors, you know, this is what I want. I'll make an effort and I'll do this. And, and they accepted that I, I seemed hungry and I seemed to want to do it. So they let me in. And I was in my, I was on my final year and it was a final term of a two year course. 
And the final term was dedicated to automatic transmissions and it was considered the hardest term of the whole two years. That's why they left it right to the end. And because it was considered such a difficult subject, our first day was just a half day. They'd introduce us to it gradually and give us the afternoon off. So I went to college in the morning. In the afternoon, I went out on my motorbike and I lost my right arm. In a, Not in... quite as easy as that. <laughs> Not quite that easy. That that sounds surprisingly, and I tell people this, it's really easy to lose a limb because you don't know you're going to lose it and, and you're not prepared for it. So one day you go out and suddenly you have some tragic accident and you've lost a limb. And that was exactly my case because I've gone out on my motorbike and I'm driving around enjoying myself. And the next minute I woke up in hospital and it appeared, or so I was told, that a guy that I knew tried to do a jump over the top of me and I didn't even know he was there. And he couldn't do a jump over the top of me. So he was on his motorbike and I was on mine. And I didn't know he was there. And instead of making the jump, he landed on top of me. And his foot peg, where you put your feet and rest your feet, <clears> caught <throat> me inside my elbow in my, in my arm there and just ripped my arm off there. And then it pulled it out of the socket at the shoulder and it landed a hundred meters away from me or a hundred yards in old money at oh, wow. the feet of a local kid as it happens called brownie and, and i think about him a lot as it happens when when i think about this story and then the motorbike went into my chest and collapsed and punctured both my lungs ruptured my liver ruptured my gallbladder ruptured my spleen fractured my pelvis and broke my leg i was in a bad way yeah. and it's quite, it quite strange because I remember waking up in hospital and there was an angel looking down on me. And I really thought it was an angel and I thought I was dead. Anyway, that, na that angel was called Janet and she was a staff nurse at Ward 16 at the Leeds General Infirmary. But I thought I was dead. And it's strange because I said to my friends and family when I eventually came round, if I was going to die, I said I would have rather died at that moment because I was happy doing something that I enjoyed doing. But... I didn't know I was going to be happier after that and there was no way of knowing and the first time I knew that I was going to be happy and I was in a daze really, I didn't believe them when they were telling me I'd lost a right arm, I, I could still feel it and I, I can still feel it today and I didn't know it was called phantom limb which if you've lost a limb you can still feel that missing limb. Incidentally somebody told me, I said to them, that limb's still there, I said oh I can still feel that limb because my brain thinks it's still there. And my friend said to me, no, no, that's not what it is, Steve. And I thought, oh, maybe he's got some knowledge that I don't know. And mm -hmm. I said to him, well, what is it then? And he said to me, it's because your soul is still intact. And I, I really loved that. And oh. it made me go all goose pimply. And it just done, it's just done that now. Because I love the fact that what a lovely positive spin, my soul is still intact. Yeah. I've and, not and heard that one before. That, that, yeah, it's lovely. I haven't heard that and it was just so nice but that that was just a few weeks ago that somebody said that and, and I just thought that's really nice a really nice way of looking at things but I remember yeah. I remember when we were in hospital and I needed to use the toilet and everybody was using commodes and I asked the, the, the nurse Janet if she'd take me to the the toilets and she did and I remember looking in the mirror and I was absolutely overjoyed I couldn't I couldn't believe my eyes I mean overjoyed not because I'd lost the right arm, but all the acne that I had from being a young boy and I had really bad acne and that was one of the reasons I was badly bullied. But all my acne had gone. And that must have been due to the fact that they'd been pumping me with antibiotics. 
and they'd all gone and I was absolutely overjoyed and it didn't matter that I'd lost the right arm because my acne had gone and this was the ammunition that the bullies had had for years and I was just the happiest I'd ever been and I realised at that moment, you know, isn't it strange how we can see the good in what at first might be a bad situation. I was super happy. And from that moment on, you've been able to see positive in everything that's really come along. And well, from there, there's so many ways to, to talk about what you've done. So which way are we going? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Linda. Pick, pick a direction <laughs> and we'll start in that. We might, we might sort of like veer off in another direction. Okay. Well, I I know that you love dancing, so you've got you've got a passion for dancing. I do, and do you know how I got into dancing? And when I was riding my motorbike, all I lived for was riding my motorbike. And the old times that I would go to the local disco, and it was called the Cherry Tree. It was in it was in Lincoln Green, Lincoln yeah, in Lincoln Green in Leeds. Uh, in, ironically, it's now a mosque. So what was once a place of alcohol? and dancing all night is now a serene place of worship and i quite like that as well it, it's a polar opposite to what it was but that was my first uh, i suppose entry into into nightlife and dancing and i'd been going with my friends a few times before i had had my accident but i just couldn't get into it and i'd go down we'd pay it was 30 pence was the entry fee and i'd go down pay my 30 pence entry fee and I'd have a glass of Coca-Cola because I didn't drink. And my mates would really take the mickey out of me because why don't you have a man's drink? But I was brought up by women. I didn't even know what a man's drink was. You know, my idea of drink was a baby sham because my mum liked baby shams. Or it'd be a snowball because my, my, my grandma and my auntie liked snowballs. So they were my idea of drinks. Not like a, a real man's drink, which I still don't know what that is today which I'm glad to say people have changed, haven't they? Because now men will buy cocktails and they'll buy a, a glass of wine and you don't just have to have a pint of beer, which I've never got the taste for as it happens. So I used to go dancing to this place, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't cope and it bored me. And I'd only be there 10 minutes, one glass of Coca-Cola, and then I'd say to my mates, right, I'm going home. And I'd leave them and I'd come back home and I'd tinker with my motorbikes. But once I'd lost my right arm, I couldn't really do that because uh, I wasn't riding my motorbikes anymore and I was in such a, a bad state uh, physically that I decided what I would do is I'd make a little bit more of an effort to stay at the cherry tree with my friends. And it was, it was the 80s and it was the early 80s and body popping was just becoming the rage and breakdancing. And I'd been practicing to try and do what, what we now call the moonwalk which is which was called the backwards walk and it was it was i forget who it was it was a guy called charlie daniels i think it was or somebody daniels i forget his first name now and he was from a different group i think he was called shalimar and he did the backwards walk as it was called it was later adopted by by of course michael jackson and mm -hmm. called the, the moonwalk so nobody would teach you how to do these things because it were trade secrets of the dancers and everybody wanted to keep their moves a secret. So nobody would teach me. So I practiced and practiced for hours in front of a mirror. And one day I did this, this moonwalk or the backwards walk, but I didn't know I'd done it. So I had to practice for hours and hours again <laughs> until I realized I had actually done it and I could repeat it. And then I became the best moonwalker or bad, backwards walker uh, on the dance scene. 
and people would stop to watch me do this moonwalk or backwards walk and and i was really good at it and then i started doing a little bit more body popping and before i know i was a body popper and and, and people were watching me and, and crowding around and watching me and i got invited up onto stages to dance so i was like the turn then and then i got involved with break dancing and it was when i was break dancing and body popping i was down in meanwood in, in a nightclub down in meanwood and the dj asked me and my friends if we would like to become uh, a breakdance team and he would pay us to do displays in and around the Yorkshire region so we became known as Chain Reaction and that was our group name and we'd go breakdancing and bo body popping around the Yorkshire region and we got paid for it and that was my introduction to dance Wow and of course the love of music went on to other areas as well because you went off to uh, your engineering and your jukebox industry as well yeah, you know, music is, is, is really a catalyst for many things in my life. And what happened after the, the breakdancing is I then became a DJ and I worked for many years as a DJ. I think I did 15 years and I did a couple of summer seasons. I did summer season in Benidorm and a season in the south of France. And I was a karaoke presenter and, and DJ. But at the same time, I'd also found a love for vintage jukeboxes because a friend of mine had found one on a demolition site and he knew that I wanted one and had always wanted one as a young man and I ended up buying this jukebox from my friend off of this demolition site for £100 and I was 19 and I had to borrow the £100 just to buy this jukebox and I eventually got it working and when I sold it I, I, I earned £100 profit and I'd really done nothing so I thought wow this is great and that got me involved with vintage jukeboxes something that i'm still doing today as it happens i'm restoring a vintage jukebox at the moment from 1954 so i still do these and i have i have in my collection i have i've probably got about six six vintage jukeboxes i might have more i might have seven or eight i've got quite a few i lose track some of them are in storage some are in my workshop some are in the house and and i also got involved with vintage slot machines and one-armed bandits and i know that's a bit of a pun really but people used to call me the one-armed bandit because it was my <laughs> it was my call name or 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 whatever you on on the CB radios. If you remember CB radios, yes, I do. I, I was known as a one-armed bandit because I collected one-armed bandits and I had one arm. Oh. So so I've done many many things. But then many years later with dance, I found the love of dancing with a partner, and I'd never really been into partner dancing. I'd always been a solo dancer, dancing by myself, which was okay, I loved it, loved it. But then as soon as I was introduced to dancing with a woman, it was another level, it was just absolutely amazing. Because it's when I found myself in the solo dancing scene, then all your mates were dancing by themselves. And what they wanted to do was go over and dance with a woman and say, hello, would you like to dance? And you just end up dancing by yourselves in front of each other, which always felt to me a little bit strange and a bit awkward because you didn't need you didn't need the other partner so why was you doing this dancing in front of each other when you could dance with your mates but when i when i was introduced to partner dancing i thought wow this is absolutely fantastic and it was a friend of mine that had just got married and she'd come to visit me with her with her husband and they were from spain and we'd gone to a, a nightclub in the median center in leeds and they put la bamba on and it's not really a latin well it's sort of latin song but it's not salsa but my two spanish friends danced a little bit of salsa to this song and i thought wow and i watched these two lovely people that were just married 
and in love and and watched them dance together and I thought I want to do that and I want to be able to dance with a woman and I want to be I want to be able to be confident in dancing with a woman I wanted to be that guy that could direct the woman in the dance and not be embarrassed and, and, and not feel stupid so I started taking salsa dancing lessons and and I've never looked back since that and since since I've started partner dancing as a salsa dancer I then took up ballroom dancing I then took up swing jive and I took up rock and roll and I've tried all sorts of dance and so long as I'm dancing with a partner I'm happy because it's absolutely amazing ironically I really don't want to dance by myself again always nice to be sharing it with somebody well isn't isn't life and everything about sharing yeah. you know if you go to a restaurant do you want to share your food I do I never want my food for myself you know I'd rather share it with somebody yeah. and and that's not because I'm tight and I don't want to pay I don't want to pay for half a meal no we can have both meals but let's share them you know let's let's make it a fun entertain yeah trying different things so I, I like to share everything really and it seemed only logical that I should be sharing a dance. So from this, you started tinkering about with your, your jukeboxes and uh, then you actually went on to, to get your degree as well. Yeah, you know, my, my educational record in the past was really poor. Uh, strangely enough, when I went to college to study as a motor mechanic, even though I didn't really, I did finish the last term, but I missed all the, I missed all the hard work and I missed the, the important subject I wanted to do, but I still passed it because I studied while I was laid in the hospital bed. And I, I, so I still got good grades at college. In fact, my grades were the second highest. There was me and another guy that had really good grades. And because of that, I had all these job opportunities. Like I had a great opportunity to be working in the Formula One pits. And I had a job opportunity to work in a commercial vehicle uh, workshop as well. And I also had an offer from the RAF to go working as uh, an, air, an aircraft and helicopter technician. But all those things had, uh, had actually gone now. So I realised my education had suffered. And although I did OK at that point, what was I going to do now? I was a one-handed guy because I'd never really trained as a one-handed guy. So what I did is I did lots and lots of night schools until I eventually exhausted all the night schools. And then I thought, well, I'll go to university. But university wouldn't accept me because I had no qualifications from school. Hmm. And they kept saying to me for about two or three years, I'd keep asking if I could go to university. And every time I got the same reply. And that was that I would have to do an access course at, at a college. And this access course would gain me access to, to university. And it was to get me up to speed with all the school leavers. Yeah. And I went back to the same college that I'd studied my motor mechanic in at, and it was Leeds College Technology. But this time I did an access course in computing. And to my surprise, my grades were really good. But I didn't realise how good they were. Because at the end of the year, I was awarded student of the year because my grades were the highest in the whole college. Yeah. And, and I'm a stupid kid that only attended two days a week at college and I think well I'm stupid how can I be getting these grades and it was only because I applied myself and I realized I quite enjoyed what I was doing and for the first time in my life I realized I enjoyed English language and I did really well at English GCSE and I also realized that I did I, I did really well or I really enjoyed mathematics and I did really well at mathematics but this was only due to the teachers that I had and, and I realized then 
you know it takes it takes it doesn't take much to inspire a child as a teacher but it takes even less to break one mm-hmm. and i realized that if i'd just got some decent teachers when i was a young man maybe i would have been in a different position altogether because i really excelled at this course and i was given the student of the year award and that gained me access to to numerous universities i was awarded a place at leeds university i was awarded a place at leeds metropolitan university which is called leeds beckett's now mm-hmm. i was awarded a place at huddersfield university bradford university and there were some other ones as well there were about there were about five or six in total York turned me down, but I did expect the wood because they have a really super duper high expectation or high entry level. And I only had two GCSEs and, and an access course. So I decided I'd go to Leeds Metropolitan University. And that was because they had some great links in industry. But not only that, their campus was absolutely gorgeous. It was a green field. It was, it, it was like nestled in, in nature. And it was beautiful. And I thought to myself, can I spend three to four years of my life here and I thought I can I loved it but I couldn't at Leeds University because that was a big concrete jungle and I couldn't spend that time in a concrete jungle although Leeds University had uh, was higher up on the league tables I thought that well that's fine but if you can't if you can't settle or you don't enjoy the environment where you're working or studying I wouldn't I wouldn't stick it so I went to Leeds Metropolitan and I absolutely loved it and I came out with a first class honours degree in computer science. So it came out with the highest degree level you can get. So uh, really going from this lad that wouldn't go to school or was unable to go to school to being like top of the the top class, it must have been an incredible uh, feeling to know that you could do this. Well, how does that even work? You know, it's, I, I'm, I'm so, I still don't think I'm clever, but I'm thinking, how have I managed to do this? And uh, but yeah, once I'd done all these things and I came out with these top gr- grades, I had a moment of a, a light, uh, I suppose, enlightenment, and I, th- I realised that I was capable of doing anything because the things that I was so bad at and poor at in the past, I just excelled at. Now these were my su- my my poorest subjects. Education was my poorest subject. I just couldn't do it, and all of a sudden I'm getting I'm getting the highest grades. So I'm thinking, well, what else is it that I thought that I couldn't do, that I actually can do? And then you start realising that all the things you think you can't do, you can do. And there's no, actually there's nothing that you can't do. It's just a matter of, of, of trying and, and giving it a go. Because if you never give it a go, you'll never know. And you'll surprise yourself that you're capable of achieving anything. If you've got that determination, you can do absolutely anything you want to do. I think we talk, we talk ourselves out of a lot of things. The, the actual fear of failure is, is more daunting than actually doing something and not being able to do it because you can learn from that. But you we stop ourselves. You can, and I, and I realised something. I, I was I was telling a story to somebody the other day, and I was telling them about swimming for the first time with one arm. Now I only had my twenty-five and fifty-meter uh, certificates from primary school, so I was never a good swimmer. But I was going on holiday with some friends and we were going to Spain and I wanted to swim in the sea and in the pools, but I hadn't swam with one arm. And I was quite worried about it because I didn't know what would happen. Would I go around in circles? Uh, maybe. I had not a clue. And I thought, the only thing I can do really here is, is go swimming and find out. So a group, of, a group of my friends and I went swimming to Richard Dunn Sports Centre, which was in Odsall Top at Bradford. And 
and we went in there and it was really quite strange because I said to the lady behind the counter, I said, can I have a disabled person's entry, please? And she said, did you bring proof of your disability with you? And I said, <laughs> and I said oops, I said, do you mean like a, like a piece of paper or like a, a, a note from my doctor? They said, yeah. I said, oh, no, I haven't got one of them. She said, well, um, I said, but I brought my disability with me. I said, would that be sufficient? And she said, well, what's your disability? I'm not sure that I'm not sure that's acceptable. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, I've only got one arm, at which I took my jacket off my shoulder and waved my, my shoulder around it because I had a T-shirt on. And she said, oh, she said, but you'll use as much pool as anybody else, won't you? And I said to her, I said, no. I said, I'm going to swim around in circles. At which point she said to me, oh, yeah. And she let me in for the disabled rate of 50 pence <laughs> while my mates paid five pounds each. But I didn't, she didn't want to let me in. But it was a bit strange because why, why even quiz me? You know, I, it was obvious I had one arm. Oh, goodness. But the strange thing, this is, this is what I learned from, on that moment, is I'm in the pool and I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? I had no idea how to swim with one arm. And I decided that if I started by swimming on top of the water, I could possibly sink. But then I realised that if I started under the water and I, and I held my breath, the only place I could go, really, was up. I couldn't sink because I'm already under the water. So that, I said to my mates what I was going to do, and they just stood round to watch me and see if I was OK. And I took a deep breath and did a shallow dive under the water and started swimming under the water. And as I was going, I, I floated to the top and I was swimming. And, and why this is quite poignant for me is I was really scared about about trying to swim and I was really worried about that but it was really easy so the challenge and the problem that I had was in my mind it was nowhere else I just didn't realize it would be so easy and I did it in a split second so I realized at that point that the problems that most of us have are in our mind but I guess in that way everybody's problems are really very true. I think you know all all of us have got that uh, that 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 fear that we just stop ourselves in our own tracks. Yeah, because you've gone. It was, it was, in, it was Sorry, enlightening got... that. It was enlightening really into that. I just didn't yeah. realise it would be so easy. Because yeah. you've gone on to do so much more. I know we're sort of ju jumping forward a lot here, but obviously. Uh, the horse riding and the dancing and everything else has, has, has come on. But learning to fly, so to, uh, 2012. Yes. Yeah. How, how did this come about? So th th this came about by when I left university and we have to do a final year project. Well, I knew about jukeboxes, so I created a piece of software for a digital touchscreen jukebox and I wrote all the software myself. And... And I, I, I created all the hardware because I'd done electronics at night school. So I created all the hardware, all the touchscreen interfacing and all. And I wrote all the software and I created this jukebox. And after university, I went on to further develop my jukebox and launch and launch my company, Robinson's Jukeboxes Limited. And in the first eight months of trading, I sold 400 jukeboxes. So I turned over more than a million pounds. But a company in the northeast of England wanted my jukebox, but they didn't want to pay for it. So what they did is they got one of my jukeboxes and they copied the software and they circumvented the security which destabilised the software and they created a substandard version of my product and that substandard version damaged my product's reputation and not only that, they priced me out of the market with my own invention 
So I, I had no option but to sue them for copyright infringement and I started litigation against them. And litigation lasted six years and every day during six years I would, re would receive death threats over the phone and I would have thugs trying to kick my door down to get to me to stop me from prosecuting the millionaire owner of this company. <laughs> but, um, but I didn't stop and I, and I kept going and I kept going. And eventually, six years later, I won my, my court case in an out-of-court settlement, but it was a derisory payment and it resulted in destroying my company and also destroying my, my drive. And I'd lost, all, I'd lost all faith in people and the judicial system and everything. And I was suicidal. And I was looking on the internet one day and I was looking on the internet for a way to kill myself. And, and I found this article and it said flying scholarship for disabled people. Now I've always been afraid of flying. And I thought to myself, I'm going to apply for that because what is the worst that could happen? And my friend said to me, the worst that could happen, Steve, is you could kill yourself flying this aircraft. And I said to him, yeah, but I'm okay with that. So I realized it was a win-win situation. I'd apply for this flying scholarship. If I got it, it might kill me, but I was happy with that. If it didn't, it might cure me of my fear of flying and it might give me something to live for. So I applied for it and, and to my surprise, I was awarded it. And I was awarded it by Prince Faisal of Jordan. And that was in 2012. And I started my flight training down at Kemble Airfield, which is in the Cotswolds down in the, the south of England. And and I was given a 20-hour flying scholarship and I started flight training down there with a prosthetic arm that the NHS had made for me. But that NHS prosthetic arm, unfortunately, didn't work and it failed at 3,500 feet. And we did a bit of a, a spiral dive and we dropped through a cloud doing doing unplanned aerobatics and my, my instructor grabbed the controls because I said to him, John, John, I said, you've got control. And John said to me, no, Steve, You've got to learn to fly this aircraft by yourself with one arm. At which point, as we'd done this spiral dive, we'd dropped through a cloud. I said, no, John, you have control. My bloody arm's falling off. And at that point, my arm was on the floor in the cockpit of the aircraft and we're dropping out of the sky like, like, a, like a ton of bricks. And that was you facing, really facing your fear. That was really facing my fear. And that was the start of my, my flight training. And I realised that the prosthetic arm that the NHS hadn't, had made wouldn't work. So I returned back to Leeds and the NHS made me another prosthetic arm, but it took them two years in total to make two prosthetic arms, by which point I'd lost the remaining hours of my flying scholarship. Mm -hmm. But not only that, when I came to test the prosthetic arm Mark II, it didn't work at all. And at this point, I'm about to give up thinking, shall I just pack it all in? But I thought, no, it's not in my nature to give in. I'm going to fight on and fight on. So I decided I didn't really want to go back to the NHS and ask them for a, yet another prosthetic arm because I felt so ungrateful going and asking them to spend more money when I knew that they needed their money. And, and I thought, I'm the only person that knows how to make the correct prosthetic arm is me, surely. So I started making my own prosthetic arm and it took me six months to make it. And when I finally made it, it was passed by a medical flight examiner and I was allowed to continue flight training with my homemade prosthetic arm and I passed my pilot's licence in 2015. Amazing. So uh, do it yourself, arm as well, to learn how to fly. Fantastic. Yeah, well, you think sometimes, you know, if, you, if, if what you want doesn't exist, then you have to make it yourself. 
necessities, the uh, the mother of invention, apparently. Exactly. That. I was just going to quote that myself, Linda. I'm glad <laughs> you came that, with that one first. It's a great uh, quote, isn't it? But it's true. It is. Yeah. Did you know? Did you know that touchscreen interfaces were dis were designed for disabled people? People, many people don't know this, but they were designed for people that didn't have the dexterity of touch to touch a keyboard. So they made big icons on a screen and let you touch the screen. But look where they are. They're in every part of everybody's life these days. And nobody realises that that was a disability aid. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. interesting but you didn't stop there, did you? You didn't just stop at flying. You actually went on to do something else with flying. I did, you know. So as we dropped through that cloud and we were doing unplanned aerobatics and I don't like aerobatics, I'm only just getting over flying. But then one day I was approached by the Davina McCall show, the programme called This Time Next Year. And they'd seen me on the one show because I'd done, they'd done a big piece about me on the on BBC One show about the guy with one arm making his own arm and going flying. And I took Rory Reid flying, who was the new presenter of Top Gear. And because I'd seen that, the... The, the, the TV people came to me from the Davina McCall show and they said, would I make a pledge on their programme and do something? And I said, well, yeah, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to land at five airports in, a, in a, an hour or something like that? Or even do my other fear of horse riding on camera? And they said to me, no, we'd, uh, we'd like you to do aerobatics. <laughs> and I said, well, no, no. I said, I don't want to do aerobatics. Can we do something else? No, we've decided, they said. We'd like you to do aerobatics. And I said to him, no, I don't want to do that. And they said to me at this point, are you a motivational speaker? Don't you go around the world telling people how anything is possible? And don't you tell people how you can overcome any fear by using a simple psychotherapy methodology known as exposure therapy? And I said, yeah. And I realised at that point that I'd backed myself into a corner. And I had to say, yes, OK, I'll do it. So I did. But I didn't want to do it. And that was the start of my aerobatics flight training. And I took aerobatics flight training during the next year. And when I went back down to do the second part of the filming on this time next year, I had completed an aerobatics routine in front of a large audience. And I did all this with one arm and my homemade prosthetic. And that made me the first one arm pilot to do an aerobatics routine. Just amazing. And of course, you've gone on to do uh, a lot more of that ever since. I have, and I was flying on Saturday, as it happens. Yeah. I went took my friend flying. We flew from, I was going to take her to a little airport, which was down by, um, down by Grimsby, called Northcourt. But he wanted to fly over York and look at the York Minster. And from there, he wanted to fly up to Castle Howard and fly and do a couple of circuits around Castle Howard. So we did that instead. And then on the way back, we stopped at a lovely little airfield called Breton, which is the home of the real aircraft company. And they call it that because they have a collection of vintage aircraft there that are owned by private individuals. Everybody, there's like, there might be 100, 200 vintage aircraft there and they're all individually owned by individuals that are there. Wonderful place for a day out if you get chance. It's, yeah, it sounds very, very, very interesting. And all, all of this time that you've been doing all of this for yourself and you've been supporting others along the way, of course, you got your recognition in 2018. I did, you know, that, that's flown by, hasn't it? So yes. I wasn't really trying to get anything out of, out of the, my experience for me. 
what I was trying to assure people is if, if a guy with one arm can do all these things and an uneducated guy with one arm can do all these things, then surely you must realise that you have the potential also to do great things when, when, you, when you realise. So my message has been when I go on and speak around the world is that anything is possible for you too, not, not just for me. So I'm, I really want to instil into people that they can do anything they want to do with their lives. And, and I've been doing that for a number of years now. And I suppose that's got me quite a lot of recognition. I've got quite a few awards. I was awarded the Yorkshire Inspirational Individual of the Year in 2017. In 2016, I was given the Douglas Bader Memorial Trophy for my outstanding contribution to disabled pilots. Now, a lot of people might not know who Douglas Bader is, but just to give you a quick bit of background, it was a Second World War Spitfire race and he had no legs. So to be awarded this award in his name was absolutely wonderful. But the topping and the uh, the topping on the cake was the British Empire Medal that I was awarded by the Queen in 2018. And very well deserved. We've done so much. I, when, I, when I talk to people like you, Linda, and I tell people all these things I've done, and I've done a lot more than what I'm telling you, I think yes. to myself, really, have I done all this? Because when... When somebody speaks out your life, when I was awarded the British Empire Medal and the chap that, that said, the next person has done this and done this and done this and done this. I said to my mum and sister that were there with me, I said, wow, he's done a lot. And they kept going, they kept going. And, and you don't realise, you just think you're listening to somebody else because it's just a, a story of so many things. And, yes. and right at the end, they said, please come forward and collect your award, Stephen Robinson. And I thought, that's me, but I'd never heard somebody talk. Uh, about me in that way before because to me my life is just my life yes but uh, obviously uh, this year has been uh, a change for you as well because you'd got together a really amazing speaking career and keynotes all around the world and of course covid hit and the bottom fell out of the market yeah you know i was speaking i was speaking in new zealand Australia, I was speaking in Spain, I was speaking in Florida, I was speaking in multiple locations in the UK and then overnight, because of course of COVID-19, which is understandable, uh, all events have been cancelled. So from all these speaking gigs that I had booked in in my, um, in my diary, my diary is basically bare now. So then you think to yourself, oh, is that, is that good? Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Well, it's neither really. It's, no, it's certainly not bad. It's a disappointment because I wanted to do those, but they will be repeating next year. So instead, I've been doing other things that I wanted to do. I've been doing some restoration work on my vintage jukeboxes that I've, actu I've actually loved. I had one jukebox that was so, so in such a bad state of repair that I've put it off for years and years. And I've basically just finished that. I've got that working just the other day. I've got some sound out of the amplifier and that's that that's going to be a beautiful jukebox so i'm happy with that not only that that i've discovered cycling while uh, while we've had lockdown because i said we could go and do our hours exercise i had an old bicycle in my in my garage and i thought well i'll go try a bit of cycling and i've done it every day since lockdown and i've absolutely loved it i've done the leeds liverpool canal last week i did 33.5 miles i went i was in the yorkshire dales just the other day, I think it was what went today, Monday. It would have been Saturday. I was in the Yorkshire Dales, and or Friday. You know, I said like it was Friday, 
and I did 24.8 miles there. Every day I do a 10 mile circuit around Leeds and who would have thought that out of such a, a bad situation there would be so many great things. I've met some great people on the internet and it's been fantastic and opportunities are looking like there's going to be even more of them when we come out of lockdown. Uh, that was my, my next question. With all of these things that you've done and all of these achievements you had, what, what lays ahead for you? Well, the good thing as well is, I, I don't know whether I told you that I'm writing my book and it's called No Harm in Trying. Now, it was, <laughs> it, it was ready and it was going to be released on the 19th of April. We're going to have the big re release day and, and because the 19th of April is the day that I lost my right arm, so everything was geared up for that day. Then we got COVID uh, on the sort of like the, the round about March time, and all that was cancelled. So my publisher said to me, "Well, Steve, it's not going to happen on the 19th, and we don't know when it will happen this year. So although it's finished, why don't you put some more chapters in?" Well, I've got so many stories. We only had 31 chapters, and I said, "Yeah, okay, I'll put some more chapters in." Now I didn't think I had that much more to talk about. But it's now up to 51 chapters and I've still got some more chapters to write. So you're going to go from an ordinary book to a war and peace book? It looks like it might be the war <laughs> and peace, doesn't it? So oh, there are, you know, when people say to you how many words are in your book and I, I got stuck on this, asking publishers and people that have written books, how many words are in your book? And people said, well, you want round about 40 to 40 to 50,000 about right or to 60,000 and I did a word count the other day and I've got 101,000 words now a lot of it will be it'll be cut out and it'll bring the it'll bring sort of like the numbers down again because they don't want a war and peace or maybe yeah. maybe I do I don't know maybe you could have what volume one and volume two maybe so maybe they might suggest <laughs> that part one of Stephen Robinson and part two might yeah. be a good idea but and then course, you don't have to lose any of them no, and of course, you know, I, I'm 56 now, so it's not like my life's over and I still feel like there's a lot more that I want to do. So it almost feels like my, my journey has only just begun. So I feel like I've only just, you know, we're touching the tip of the iceberg. I feel like I've got lots more to do and lots more stories to tell. So looking back from where you are now and all the things that have unfolded that you never expected, that that young boy, you know, sort of playing in the streets in uh, the back end of Leeds, yeah. you know, what what advice would you given him? That's a difficult one because I wouldn't have believed any advice because mm. you know what it's like when, when, when people tell you and give you advice and, and they have the benefit of wisdom. You know, as a young child, it's like my grandfather would tell me some stuff or my, my mum would tell me some stuff. You don't really listen because you think you know better as a kid. So it's always difficult to take advice from anybody. And I, I would have just said to myself, just go and enjoy your life. And, and don't worry what comes. Just enjoy your life and do the things you like doing. Because if you find the things that you like doing and you turn them into a business, then you'll be successful. Because you like, if you like doing the, the, your work, most a lot of people, I didn't realise this, but a lot of people are stuck in jobs that they don't actually like. Now, imagine being stuck in a job that you don't like. How difficult must that be to motivate yourself to do that job every day? So you may as well be doing something that you like and enjoy the work that you're doing. Because if you're going to spend, it's a big percentage of your life that we spend working. 
You might as well be doing something you enjoy doing. Oh, very much so. I, 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 I too, I'm very lucky. I, I always say I don't feel like I've actually worked many days in my life at all. But... I do. I don't feel like I've worked at all. I feel like I'm just playing and I'm enjoying myself. And who would have thought I wouldn't have known when I first became a disabled man that, that I would have a good life or have such a, a fun life. But I just decided at that point that I would enjoy myself and hopefully I'd earn some money along the way. I didn't have a direction. So I guess I would have just said, to, I might have told my younger self to stick up for myself more at school. But would that, would that have helped? I'm not sure because I do think to a certain extent that the bullying that, that I experienced sort of made me stronger and made, I suppose, prepared me to handle more difficult stuff in the future. I just didn't know I would have to handle difficult stuff in the future. But it made me definitely a stronger personality. So thank you so much. I know time's run away with us and there's so many more stories we could talk about. So we'll definitely come back for the, ne the next uh, instalment, <laughs> like, like they used to put on all, all of those TV series, you know, to be continued. <laughs> yeah, to be continued. Part two next week. <laughs> there will be so much more. So Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Well, how can people get in touch with you if they want to? Well, Linda, they can find me on the internet, of course. They can find me on my website, which is www.steven, with a V, hyphen, which is a little minus sign, robinson.com. Or they can find me on Twitter, which is Steve with one arm. And, uh, yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to speak to anybody or, or, or give anybody any advice. Just drop me a line. You can possibly find me on Facebook as well. If you just do a search for Stephen Robinson, you'll find me on there as well. Fantastic. We will, we'll put the links up as well as we, we post this out. So uh, anybody that wants to get in touch, Steve's a lovely guy, very easy to speak to, as you could hear from all this. And the good thing about a podcast is you can go back and listen to it several times because there's so many gems there. So thank you all so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed uh, talking to, to Stephen today. So Stephen, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Linda. And thank you all for being with us too. I hope you've enjoyed it. And again, join us next week for the next one. Meantime, take care, stay safe. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded in conjunction with the Chapel FM Art Centre and East Leeds FM radio station. For more information about them and all the good work that they do is www.elfm.co.uk. And to know more about what Linda Sage is doing, her website is www.lindasage.com. Also on all the other social medias.